so we're going to be old school and you're going to give quizzes. So you need to memorize, study memorizing. I mean, we don't memorize anymore as edu ed educators. We got to think critically, of course, obviously, but memorization is what are you going to think critically about if you don't have anything in your head? You can only think critically if you have stuff in your head and you're able to draw it quickly, right? Then you think critically after that about the things that are already in your head. So basically, we're going to learn and memorize and make sure you get down the 10 things that we've studied when it comes to intentions, okay? Uh, those 10 points about intentions. And today, we're going to read, we're going to begin on the next hadith that Imam Nawi considered the 40 most important hadiths in the entire corpus of the Prophet's statements because these hadiths encapsulate the fundamentals of the whole religion. Okay, the fundamentals of the whole religion. This hadith is from Umar ibn Khattab, and he says in this hadith that while we were sitting with the Messenger, peace be upon him, a man came. The description of this man is that he was pure, clean, white thobe, his beard was perfectly clean, his hair was jet black. Right? Why is it important that he mentions that his hair was jet black? Right? Shadidu sawad al Very dark black. Why? Because this man apparently looks like he just came out of a bath. Right? If you have jet black hair and you live in the desert, your hair after a day's work will not look jet black, right? It's going to be dusty. So if your hair is jet black, that means you just took a bath, right? If you just took a bath and you walk to the masjid, even if you know these areas, just by walking that small distance, a small distance, you're going to get dusty already, right? So that means the man, he must have taken a shower right around the vicinity of the masjid. But then Omar says, nobody knows him. We started asking, do you know him? Do you know him? Who is this? And everyone says, I don't know him. Never seen him before. Okay. Then he now asks a question. The second strange thing about this man. He asks a question to the Prophet, peace be upon him. But then he confirms the answer. When the Prophet answers, he confirms the answer. So he's, is he ignorant or not? Because he's asking, which indicates ignorance of something. If you ask him, you indicate ignorance. But then he's confirming, which indicates knowledge. So he's confused. Then... The, he asks five questions. The Prophet answers four. The Prophet doesn't give an answer for the fifth one. Then the Prophet sees these, the, the Sahaba are completely wondering, who is this man? Then the Prophet, peace be upon him, said, do you know who it is? He said, no. He said, then go outside the masjid now and find him and bring him back. So they all go quickly out of the masjid. They look left, they look right. The man just left. He's gone. The third peculiarity about the man is that he's, a, he's finally clean, perfectly clean, but no one knows him. And in this environment, you're, not, you're going to be a bit dusty if you traveled. So he's not a traveler and, no, and he's not a resident. He's not ignorant, right? But he's asking questions. And then he just disappears. So then they came back and they said, O Messenger of Allah, tell us about this strange man. 
He said, it is Jibreel whom Allah sent in the form of a man to teach you the summary of your religion. The three questions were, what are the actions that define a Muslim? What are the actions that define a Muslim? The acts of worship that make you a Muslim. Al-Islam. Okay. Then, Iman. What are the beliefs that make you a Muslim? Okay. Without one of these beliefs, you wouldn't be a Muslim. Then he says, how do we make our worship beautiful in the sight of Allah? This is Ihsan. So now I know what to believe. I know what to do. How do I know what is the right way to be spiritually on the inside when I'm worshiping God? This is called Ihsan. So Islam, Iman, Ihsan. Then the third, the fourth thing the man asked is, when is the day of judgment? This is what the question that was not answered. The Prophet said, the one who's asking, the one who's being asked knows no more than the one who's asking. Okay? So there's no there's gonna be no comments on this. So it's not beneficial for us. You all remember the guy who said that uh, uh, the judgment day is coming on May 12th, 2012. Remember way back? Right? Or it was on May 12th, 2010 or something like that? Okay, this guy, 20, remember that guy? Yeah, December 21st. December 21st of what? The 2011 it was or something? Oh, yeah, yeah, 2012, because of the mind count. I remember working in New York, seeing the billboards all over the place. By the way, the guy ended up being really clever, right? So the guy, he made a, got a lot of attention. He got a lot of donors. He got a lot, I don't know why you're donating if the Day of Judgment's going to come, right? <laughs> but he got a lot of attention. So guess what? When the day passed, what he said, right? He said, well, because we prayed so hard, God delayed it. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> right. So he turned out to be have a clever. He had a clever out from the beginning, right? So the prophet is telling us, you don't need to worry about this. You don't need to worry about when it's going to happen because number one, it's not going to happen on believers. There will be no belief on the earth when it happens. But he's telling us something else. This is the fifth question, and this is what the prophet answered. The man said, "Then inform me about its signs. What are the signs?" before the end. What is that telling us? It's telling us something very important, that there is a phase of time called Akhiruzzaman, or also known as the end of time, the end times. And in the Bible, there, is, there are many references, an entire chapter, book of Revelations, on the end times. Okay? Why are the end times so important? Because in the end times, two things happen. Number one, the people of faith are incapable, incapacitated, and unwilling to upkeep the faith any longer, right? To upkeep it any longer. And number two, it's a different type of ignorance. It's a compound ignorance. Before Abraham, what was there? Just animism and paganism. Nobody even knew what Tawheed was, right? But in the end times, they know it, and they reject it, and they have plenty of reasons to reject it. So for that reason, the end times is a worse period of disbelief, because before Abraham, it's unbelief. Unbelief, like, I don't know about what to believe, so I don't believe anything, right? So I'm just a pagan or an animist. All humans, they all go to paganism or animism, right? If they don't have the knowledge of God. But in the end times, the religions have come and gone, 
right? And the religions themselves provide reasons why people would reject them. Allah says in Surah Al-Hashr at the end, right? What does He say? Oh, our Lord, don't make us the reason that people reject faith. رَبَّنَا لَا تَجْعَلْنَا فِتْنَةً لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Don't make us the reason people are confused about faith or people reject faith. Right? So in the end times, it's misunderstanding and disbelief because of the behavior of the people who believe. Right? And therefore, the people who disbelieve are confirmed in their disbelief. They feel that their disbelief is the right thing. Right? And that belief is a wrong path. And for this reason, the Prophet, peace be upon him, he gave us specific instructions on how to behave in the end of time. Right? So that's why that was the fifth question. And that, this is what the Prophet answered. And from this, we ended up with the four answers. The four answers result for us in the four pillars upon which our religion is based. Right? Our whole religion is based on four pillars. What we believe, what we do, how we do it, and what do we do in the end of time. Because the signs of the end times. Now someone may say, well, how could the end times be as important as everything else? Well, when only a small group of people will experience the end times. So the end times will come upon what? How many generations of Muslims? Right? Maybe a uh, hundred years? Maybe two hundred years? Right? End times is not going to be a thousand years. It's uh, 100 to 200 years. So the Muslims have been around for 1400 years. So how could this small group of people, this subject, which only affects maybe a gener hundred and, uh, one century and a half, be equivalent to everyone else? Because in that century and a half, this knowledge is so precious. If you have it, you will keep your faith and you will be strengthened in your faith. If you don't have that knowledge, you will lose your faith, right? This is the value of signs of the end times, is that if you don't know what the Prophet said about the end times, you will lose your faith. But if you do know what the Prophet said about the end of times, your faith will increase. This is why we're going to get to this when we answer the fourth. Today we're only going to answer the first question. I'm going to talk about the first question, but you got to understand this is the great import of the end times, all right, is that this knowledge, your Iman will be lost or saved just because of it, just because of this knowledge, okay, of the end times. And when we study the end times, we study four things. We study the description of the times, the description of the Ummah, of the Muslims at that time, because the Prophet, not only did he describe the times, he described what will the Muslims be like at that time, right? What will the Muslims be like? And that's going to, right? Lead to the next part. The next part is, how, what are the tribulations of that time? So the description is different from the tribulations. What are the fitan? What are the tribulations of that time? And number four, how do we respond to all of this? Right? So not all signs of the end times are bad things. Like the Prophet said, metal will be used to speak. Metal will be used for people to speak. So that's not evil. There's nothing evil about using microphones, right? It's just a description of the time. Okay? So he describes the time. Secondly, he describes the ummah. What will the Muslims be like? He says they will be many, but they will be as dirty as the, uh, the, uh, the scum of the sea. This is how he described the Muslims. He described they will have a disease of weakness. They will be weak. 
and they will turn their back on gods and be disinterested in God. He didn't say they will disbelieve in God. They believe in God, but they're disinterested, and they're interested in dunya, this life. He described the Muslims for you. He described that there may be a time where there is no good groups, and that you have to stay by yourself. Okay? Then he described the, the fit and the trials and the tribulations. Many trials and tribulations he described. And then lastly, he told us how to respond. How do we respond to the end times? All right, so we're going to get that, get to that. But today, the first question that was asked, and there are two different narrations. Some narrations say that the Prophet was asked about faith first, and some say that he was, which is Iman, and some say that he was asked about Islam first, or action. What are the ritual pillars of our ritual worship? And he said five things, which you know to be the five pillars of Islam. So he said, what are the five pillars? Number one, the shahada. What is the definition of shahada? It is public testimony. So you testify openly and publicly that there is none worthy of worship but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. You have to do this once in your life. And of course, every Muslim does it multiple times in his, in his, in his day, let alone his life. There are only two types of people who are permitted to not publicly testify to their faith. Two categories of people. The one is he fear for, fears for his life. He fears for his life. Okay? Life or limb. In other words, I fear literally if I testify this, I'm going to be killed. Right? Literally, I'll be killed. Or I'll be tortured to lose a limb in some way. Life or limb. Tortured in such a way that I can't, normal life will cease to exist. And number two is the one who is within the enemies of Islam and has access to the information needed for the protection of Muslims. Right? Not just any old insider information, no. Information needed for the protection of Muslims. Like whom? There was a man from the Council of the Pharaohs, right? Hajj, could you just warn those kids of the wet paint? There's wet paint, so I didn't want those kids to mess up with it. There is a man in the council of the Pharaoh, Fir'aun. When Musa came and said, I'm a Hebrew and I'm a prophet, right? He believed in Musa, even before Musa said he was a prophet, he knew. Now, Fir'aun put out a warrant for the arrest of Moses. How did Moses know? Because this man who was in the inner circle of the Pharaoh, he knew. So he went at night and he warned Moses and Moses fled by night. By morning time, they couldn't find Moses. Okay? So this is a man for the protection of the Muslims. Right? He kept his iman secret and Allah described him a man from the inner circle of the Pharaoh who keeps his iman secret. Who else? In the time of the Prophet, it was, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Al-Abbas. Al-Abbas. The, the, you can say Abbas and you can say Al-Abbas. What is the meaning of Abbas? Abbas is the look of the lion when he's serious. When the lion is always looking serious. That type of dignified frown of the lion, right? This is the Abbas, okay? That man who has a dignity, that he's not frowning like he's uh, upset, but his natural look is like a frown that makes you take him seriously. This is the meaning of Abbas. Okay? 
And Abbas, the uncle of the Prophet, peace be upon him, believed in the Prophet, peace be upon him, but never openly testified to it. And as a result, he was able to stay on the inside of the circles of the pagans and give the Prophet the secrets that the pagans were having. So these two people who are permitted to keep their faith secret. Okay? Otherwise, it's an obligation. Your first duty in Islam is to take the shahada. Some people, some Muslim, uh, people who aren't Muslim, they're learning about Islam. And they have a type of innocent mistake, really, that anyone would normally do. They say, yeah, I believe in Islam, but I'm not going to become Muslim until I get used to things first. I met a person who's been three years praying, praying, three years, and fasting, and wearing hijab. And coming to the mosque. But this person, I said, MashaAllah, when did you take the shahada? She said, honestly, I didn't take a shahada yet. Right? Because I want to really do it, so then I can take the shahada. Then I take the shahada, I'll be serious. I said, no, well, that's her thinking. Common sense could say that to some people. Let me do it for a few years, then I'll be certain about it. So I told her, no. The first pillar, more important than your hijab, more important than prayer, more important than coming to the mosque, is to openly testify La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah Right? And how do we testify this? In front of two people That's it Right? Or in front of whoever you can That's all you need You don't have to put it all over the web If you don't, have to, if you don't want to But at least some people alive should know that you're a Muslim They will be your witnesses in front of Allah Azza wa Jal Okay? Until once you get into the swing of things Then you're saying the shahada openly all day Right? When you pray, you're saying it. When you are uh, doing anything, you're saying it. But she said, I haven't become a Muslim yet. So then we told the sister, you, 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 this is the more important than all what you're doing. And Allah will not accept any of that until you openly say so. Right? So Allah, so then she did it and uh, she became a Muslim. So she just didn't know. Right? But now you know. Now, when we say there is none worthy of worship but Allah, you have to note something very important here. This, the, the, the word of faith, the statement of faith, consists of negation before affirmation. We negate before we affirm. Okay? What are we negating? All possible false gods. Eliminate everything that is false first. And then affirm the one true God. It's as if someone opened the dishwasher, took out a, a, a mug... You didn't know if the dishwasher was on or off, so you have to look in the mug first, wash it out, then you could use it. You have to wash out first. Right? Why is that? That's because when Adam was brought down, the beginning of humanity was that all people knew Allah Azza wa And then, some wrongdoers came in the Ummah, right? which is Cain. Cain killed Abel, right? Then what was the rule at the time? If you committed a major sin, you have to be removed. So he expelled Cain. And Cain now left. And then some other people who did bad things were expelled too. So then what happened? A little colony of rebels developed. Well, this colony of rebels, they marry. They have kids. They stopped teaching their kids the religion. So those, that entire colony of people grew up, gave birth to a generation who didn't know God. But at the time, Allah says in Surah Al-Baqarah, 
We created you as one ummah. What do we believe about the early humans? We believe that the earth, first of all, was one continent. The earth itself was one continent. At the time of Adam came down, the plot of earth was one. Adam and his wife came, and the all people were one language, one skin, one lineage. The, everything was one. There were no different types of people. They were all just one peoples. Okay? So this is a big problem, actually. Right? Because if you have all your money in one pot, and then a flame goes off, the whole pot will be destroyed. And this is what happened. The, the, the small, from Cain began the infection that infected the entire population of all people at the time until Nuh was left with a few people, his few of his sons and a few followers, and that was it. And then Allah flooded. Allah will destroy destroys humanity twice. The first was with water, time of Nuh. The second is with what? With fire. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said the day of judgment begins with a mass fire that comes from the east and then engulfs the entire universe, or entire world. And that's how everyone's killed. Okay? What's the difference between the two? The destruction by water indicates a desire for new life because water is a life-giving source. But the destruction by fire indicates the permanent end of life. So when Allah Azza wa Jal informed Nuh that he would flood the people, Nuh knew they would have a second beginning because he's destroying them with a life-giving force, which is water. Then we believe that this flood of Nuh is what broke apart the initial breakings of the planets, of the, of the continents. You can obviously see it doesn't take a genius to realize that South, South America fits inside of Africa, right? That North America split from Europe that the Arabian Peninsula fits, snuggles between Asia and Africa. I mean, you, you could be a kid in sixth grade and you realize that when you look at the map, right? Because it was all one. And this flood of Nuh was not just by rain. Allah tells us the earth cracked open and water came out. So we believe that this is how the beginning of the continents, continental drift happened because of this. Okay. Secondly, when Nuh, after Nuh, Allah Azza wa Jal did things differently. He did not make everyone a believer. In fact, immediately he divided the people. How? When they got off the ark, they spent a few days with one another. After some period of time, one night, in one night, they all slept. They woke up. Each husband and wife was speaking a language. And each other husband and wife was speaking a different language. And another husband and wife were speaking a different language. So they couldn't communicate. When they couldn't communicate, they became frustrated. They split ways. They parted ways. Okay? And they all went in different directions. Then, now you see there's a lot of divine intervention immediately in the beginning of time. It's not gradual like it is today. Each of these families began to beget children. And the mother would give birth to children that don't look like them. And so, Japheth, okay, his children came out white. Sam, his children came the same. Ham, his children came differently. Came black. And, this is ha and then Ham as well, some of his children came, alright, with the look of Orientals. So this is how you get the four races. They came from the same generation that came off the ark, and this is all from the Prophet, peace be upon him. 
The Prophet, peace be upon him, said they were born with different tongues, so they split up. Then they had children that looked different from them. The only one whose children looked like him was Sam, son of Nuh. And they, he settled in the middle area. Japheth went north. Ham went south. Okay? And this is how all the different races. On top of that, no prophets were sent after Sam. Sam was a prophet, but then prophecy was delayed for a long period of time. Okay? And so what happened to all people? They fell into ignorance. So Allah Azza wa Jal did his building in the opposite way. He allowed all the people to fall into paganism first. Then he rebuilt, starting with one man, which is Ibrahim alayhi salam. So when Ibrahim came, unlike Adam, when Adam came, it was all faith. When Ibrahim came, it was all paganism. So therefore, the testimony of faith from the time of Ibrahim onwards is a negation of the existent pagan gods before affirming the one true God. All right. Now, we go to the next point. All right. And this, by the way, this concept of negating before affirmation, the Muslims use that in everything. In everything the Muslims use, when they come upon something, they say, okay, what do we not want first? List me what you don't want, right? What is definitely out, what is false, and then what is true. The next point is the definition of a God. A God in Sharia, in Islam, we define a God as having two things. Number one, he's an object of your worship. He's the direction of your worship. But number two, and really you can say this really number one at the same time. What is worship? Worship is absolute obedience. In other words, your God is what dictates your behavior. Okay? So Adi bin Hatim was a Sahabi. Who he, before he was a Sahabi, he was a Christian. He came to the Prophet, peace be upon him, because he was the son of a nobleman, or, or, or an honorous, uh, honorable man. So the Prophet took him as a guest. So then the Prophet, peace be upon him, recited to him a verse of, that Allah revealed about the Jews and Christians. And he said, they took their priests and rabbis as gods next to Allah. Now, Adi bin Hatim said, Oh Muhammad, I have to say, we never took our priests as a god. The Prophet then said, Have you ever seen a moment where your priest is telling you to do one thing, the Bible prohibits it? Or the Bible commands something and the priest prohibits it? He said, yes, that used to happen. He said, what did you all do? He said, we went with the priests. He said, that's your worship. So the Prophet defined worship and, defines a, and the Quran defines a God as that which dictates your behavior. Right? That which dictates your behavior. Therefore, our behavior has to be dictated by Allah Azza wa Jal at all times. Not only at, sometimes, at all times, we are to look Right? At what our Lord says, what our Prophet says. Right? Otherwise, it's a secularization of religion, dividing it up, saying, God here is in charge here, and I'm in charge here. Okay? So this is a big difference. Alright, next. This is the definition of a God. Now, the defini that, this is the definition of a deity. What is the definition of a God? There are certain things that logic by the definition of a God are required. Number one, there can only be one God. God cannot be, have partners. The, nature, the definition of a God is He's only one. He has no competition. He has no likeness. Okay? Number two, He's absolutely independent of all things. He is not dependent. Okay? He has no needs. 
what, what, what is the Qur'an, how does the Qur'an respond to the Trinity? The Trinity, they're saying they're worshipping one God, right? It is one God, but within the God is three. So why do, why, what do the Muslim theologians say about this? They say this is logically impossible. Why? Because within the three, there's dependency. The three depend on each other, right? If you were to remove one part of the Trinity, then the two are left godless. They're not gods anymore, right? It's not God anymore. He's not God if he's missing one part. So a God is indivisible within himself, right? He's not, there's no, like you, you're, you're one person. There's only one you, right? But how many parts do you consist of, right? You consist of a head, a torso, an arm. If we took the head away from you, are you you anymore? You're not. You're done. You're finished. So there's one you, so you're one, but within yourself are many. Dependent parts. If I took your lungs out, are you you anymore? You, you're done. So Allah Azza wa Jal, He's one, and within Himself is one. Alright, this is the meaning of Ahad. Ahad means within Himself He's one. Alright, there's no dependency and no parts. Next is that He cannot be incapable of anything. He is omnipotent. Alright, if, if a God is incapable of doing something, incapable, then he's not a God. It's not a definition of a God. And number three, he's omniscient. God has to know everything. An ignorant God, there's no God at all. Okay? It's impossible for God to be ignorant. Okay? Alright? So there are, these are some of the basic, uh, God has no beginning. God cannot be born. He has no beginning. And he has no end. Okay? He is beyond, he's different from his creation. In other words, he's beyond time and place, time and space. Okay. So these are all some fundamental definitions of a God. Usually when a philosopher attacks theology, he tries to take two of the definitions of a God and show that they're mutually ex exclusive, that they cannot exist together. Like a common example, can God create a rock that he cannot lift? Right? This is a common example, because if he can't create it, then he's not all-powerful, and if he can create it, then he can't lift it, then he's not all-powerful. We tell them, you have assumed that God lifts. The answer is, you assume that God lifts the way we lift. So God doesn't lift the way we lift, so the question is null and void. Right? The question is null and void. So this is the definition of a God. He has to have these uh, qualities. Now let's move to the next four pillars. and we're, Oh, uh, let's move to the second half of the Shahada which is Muhammad Rasulullah, we're going to talk about three things about this. The first is the obligation to recognize that Muhammad وسلم, has come for all people until the end of time. He is unique, he is the only messenger to come to all people with no limit in time. Every other prophet was given an order that your, mess, your ministry ends upon the sending of the next messenger. Okay? A messenger comes. He is ordered by Allah. Your ministry is over when the next messenger is sent down. And you, if you're alive, you have to be his follower. This is in the Quran. Right? Right? Then أَتَاكُمْ رَسُولٌ بَعْدِهِ Okay? If another messenger comes, you must follow him and give him victory. Your, your ministry is done. Okay? The Prophet Muhammad is the only Prophet who comes without this limitation. 
He is the Prophet from the time he came until the end of time. Every Prophet is coming to his people. Okay? Every Prophet comes to his people. The Prophet Muhammad has said in the Quran, we are sending you to all people. Arabs and non-Arabs. Okay? Not just to the Arabs. Why did the Prophet say Arabs and non-Arabs as if like these are two, there's only two groups in the world, Arabs and non-Arabs? No. He says Arabs because that's his people, right? And that's expected to be who he's sent to. And the one singular word, he's not going to say the Persians and the Romans and the uh, Greeks and no, he's, and, and the people of India and the people of China. He's not going to say this. He's just going to summarize all of them with one word, which is Ajam. Ajami means not Arab. So he said, I have been sent to the Arab and the Ajam, the Arabs and non-Arabs until the end of time. And it's obligatory to believe that whosoever has received the message of the Prophet, peace be upon him. You've been formed about the Prophet, peace be upon him. And rejects this, he's rejected by Allah Azza wa Jal. Whosoever receives the message of the Prophet properly. Why do we say this? We have to say that. Because the theologians tell us, if you get a skewed message of Muhammad, right, then you haven't received the message. What is a skewed message? I mean, take for example, a 90-year-old lady in Kentucky wakes up, right, what does she, what, uh, before the internet, right? What does she know about Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa She just knows that the priest said that he's a, a charlatan, right? That's what they say, right? Or the local pastor told her not to follow him. So that's all she knows. Is she like the one who receives the message properly? Allah knows that they're not the same, right? They're not the same. So it's a shart, Imam al-Ghazali tells us, that the de- when we say whoever receives the message is not just you hear his name, you receive information about him, you're told about him in the proper way, then you reject it, okay? This is the one whom Allah does not accept, okay? So this is an obligation in faith to believe in all prophets, not in some over others. It's an obligation to believe in all of the messengers of Allah Azza wa Alright, now let's move to the prayer. Any questions so far? Have any questions so far? Alright. Next portion, next obligation. When someone becomes a Muslim, what do we tell them? They should spend, you should tell them, you get a year studying beliefs. If you don't know who God is, you never read a description of God. Don't think that you know God just from yourself. There may be many things about Allah you don't know. Right? For example, who knows that Allah Azza wa Jal laughs? Right? Someone asked him, does Allah laugh? The Prophet said, yes, God laughs. Right? He said, from what does he laugh? He said, he laughs at a man who loses hope from getting what he desires when Allah knows that he will soon get it. His destiny is that you're going to get what you want. On this day, you lose hope like three days before and you gave up. Allah laughs because you're right there. You're right at the finish line. Okay? The Sahaba said, then we will never have lose hope in a God who laughs. Right? They said, what else? Why else does God laugh? He said, two people fighting one another, at war with one another. Allah knows both of them are people of paradise. They said, how? He says, one is the kills the other. So the Muslim goes to heaven. And the other then gets captured by the Muslim. And in his captivity, he becomes a Muslim. So then he lives his life and dies and goes to heaven. Then he meets the man that he killed. 
And, he th- and the man who, ki- he ki- who killed him, he says to him, what are you doing in heaven? Right? He said, after I killed you, right, I was captured and I became a Muslim and now I'm here with you. He says, thank you for killing me because now I'm a martyr. Right? And the martyr is special. The martyr, he gets to bring his whole family into paradise with him. The martyr, if his family were Muslim, he gets to bring them all into heaven, no questions asked. So he thanks him. And they're both enjoying themselves in paradise. One saying to the other, he's the one who killed me and made me a martyr. Right? SubhanAllah. Right? So then Allah laughs at that because this is a small dispute, but he knows in the future what their future is going to be like. Right? Okay. Hajj, what time is Asha now? 8.30 or 8.15? 8.15. All right, we'll stop here and we'll, we'll start with Salah, inshallah, afterwards. Subhanakallah, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wala. We now move to the second pillar, and we're taking a lot of information here, right? We're taking in a lot. Come sit on that side, on the sister side. Uh, we're taking in a lot here, so we might, you might want to tell me, I need you to tell me if we've done too much, okay? We're on Salah. Firstly, the question we're going to cover here is, how and when was Salah made obligatory? Everything is made, you know? Oh, okay. Shoot. Spend a year, who is Allah? Who is the Prophet? How are you going to worship a God and make sacrifices? Because there are a lot of sacrifices required in Islam, right? How are you going to make these sacrifices, okay, if you don't even have any love for God and His Prophet? How are you going to make sacrifice for Allah and His Messenger if you don't even know who they are, right? So you have to know who they are first, right? You have to know who is Allah first and who is the Prophet before you are, should be expected to then love them and make sacrifices for them. Right? So now we move to Salah. And when it comes to Salah, how and when is it? Everything is made obligatory in the Qur'an, right? And the Prophet has made certain things obligatory. Like what? Zakatul fitr after Ramadan, you have to give zakah, which is like uh, a certain amount of food for every person in the household. Or else your fasting is not accepted. Your fast, Prophet said, your fasting is between heaven and earth until you pay zakat al-fitr, then it goes up. Who made that obligation? Not the Qur'an, the Prophet So it's an obligation that came from him. A lot of things came from the Prophet. But this, the prayer, came only from Allah Azza wa came only from Allah Azza wa okay? Directly, on the day of the Mi'raj. So the Prophet did Isra. What does the word Isra mean? It means night journey, right? To Jerusalem. What does Mi'raj mean? It means upward journey, okay? Upward journey. That's the Mi'raj. There the Prophet ﷺ, he met the prophets in the first, all the way until he reached the seventh heaven. When he reached the seventh heaven, okay, when he reached the seventh heaven, Jibreel had to stop. When Jibreel, alayhi salam, stopped, okay, 
The, he said, you go. If I go, I'll be burned. He went and the Prophet ﷺ spoke to Allah directly. And he is the only human being to see Allah and speak to him directly before the afterlife. In the afterlife, all believers will see in Allah directly. But in this life, they will not. Okay? And the Prophet ﷺ is the only one. The Prophet, peace be upon him, then Allah spoke to him what he spoke to him. He spoke to him what he spoke to him. Then afterwards, he gave him the prayers. And he gave him how many prayers? 50 prayers. Right? He came down, Musa salam stopped him. He said, I am a leader of a people as you are. How many prayers did Allah give you? He said, 50. He said, your people will not do it. Go back. He gave him 45. Reduced it by 5. He came back. He said, how much did Allah give you? He said, 40. He said, they won't do it. Go back. He went back. He said, how much will Allah give you? He said, 35. He said, they won't do it. Go back. Until it was reduced to five. Musa alayhi salam, go back. Get it to reduce to two. One in the morning, one at night. The Prophet salam, said, I'm ashamed to ask anymore. So from then on, the prayers are five, each one worth the value of ten. Each one worth the value of ten. Now, then how did the Prophet learn the prayer? How did he learn how to pray? How did he learn how to pray? Okay. The next day, Fajr came. Now, Fajr, it's a bit dark. So Jabir didn't teach him anything. The next day when the sun came up was Dhuhr. At Dhuhr time, Jibreel came and he began teaching the Prophet, peace be upon him, the prayers. The next day. Because once something becomes obligatory, you got to do it. You can't wait, right? So he started to do it. So Jibreel took him far away from the people. And he kicked with his heel. He kicked some of the earth and water came out. Then Jibreel made a proper wudu. And the Prophet saw him make wudu and made wudu just as Jibreel made wudu. Then Jibreel prayed and the Prophet prayed right behind him. Right next to him, copying his every move. That's how the Prophet learned. Then Asr, then Maghrib, then Isha, then next morning Fajr. Okay? All at the beginning of the time. Then the next day, same day, Dhuhr, he prayed at the end of the time. Asr at the end of the time. Maghrib at the same time. Isha at the end of the time. Fajr at the end of the time. So that the Prophet prayed with him two days. Yep. Yep. Because the prayer time from Dhuhr to Asr, right? So on the first day, he prayed every prayer as soon as the prayer came in. On the second day, he prayed every prayer at the latest permissible time. You understand? He pr to show the Prophet when is the beginning of the time and when is the end of the time. So this is how the Prophet knew, okay, this is the end of Dhuhr now, right? This is the last time we could pray Dhuhr, okay? And this is the last time that we could pray Asr. No, Maghrib, he prayed it at the same time. Because Maghrib, there's no expanse. It's one time. If you delay it without cause, it's sinful. It will be valid, but sinful. Okay? So that gap that you see from Maghrib to Isha, it's a gap for emergencies only. You must pray, you cannot delay Maghrib. Unlike Dhuhr and Asr and Isha and Fajr, yeah, and you're not sinful if, you, if, if someone says, oh, Dhuhr is in. Okay, well, let me finish something real quick and then I'll pray. That's fine. However, you can't do that for Maghrib. Maghrib, you have to stop what you're doing. The only thing you could do is what you need to do. Make wudu, make ghusl, 
right? Break your fast with uh, just the breaking the fast, not the full meal. Then pray right away, then go back to doing what you're doing, right? So this is how he taught him the prayer times, okay? Immediately. Okay. Now let's move to how the, about the third pillar, Psalm. The Quran tells us all nations fasted. All nations fasted. Okay. How did all nations fast? The Prophet, peace be upon him, tells us. The Quran tells us. They had different fasts than us. It was more intense than us. It was prohibited to speak. In the fasts of the Jews, of the Bani Israel, in the time of Moses, you were prohibited from eating, drinking, and speaking. Okay. On top of that, their fast was a full cycle. Full 24-hour cycle. Was not like us. Full 24-hour uh, hour cycle. So when Allah, when Musa السلام, went to the mountain and he fasted 40 days, okay? His fast was 40 consecutive days without food or drink or speaking to a human being. Of course, the prophets are different than us. Allah says, and the prophet Muhammad used to do that fast. But he prohibited us from doing that fast. And he said, Allah gives me food and drink, but you uh, should not do this. Right? Now, the original fast for the Muslims, obligation was Muharram. And Ramadan was recommended. Muharram 10 and, 9 and 10, or 10 and 11. Either one, whether you do 9 or 10 or 10 or 11. This is called Ashura. And the fast was from Isha to Maghrib. When do we start fasting? From Fajr to Maghrib. Well, the original fast was Aisha to Maghrib. Okay? Aisha to Maghrib. And you were allowed to talk. Right? Then, in the sixth year after the Hijrah, it swapped. Muharram became recommended and Ramadan became obligatory. Right? Ramadan. This is why you can see an ayah of Quran which states, whoever doesn't want to fast Ramadan... Okay, uh, he can feed people, right? Because in the beginning it was recommended. Then people began to miss their dinner. If you miss your dinner, yani if you have to fast for a month, you can imagine now that uh, it's possible that one day you're not going to get home until Aisha, right? It's, it happens all the time. In, in Ramadan, you just break your fast in the car, you get home at like 8 p.m. So what happens if the day starts at Aisha, what do you do? And this happened to a couple Sahaba. That it so happened in the course of the day that they never got home, they never ate. Now the fast has started. So now that they started fasting the next day, and it's hot, and they have to go to work, what was happening? People fainting. People were fainting, right? So then Allah Azza wa sent down a this. He said, now you can eat until Fajr. And it used to be that you couldn't cohabit with your spouses in Ramadan. The whole month. But the Muslims couldn't keep it up. They couldn't keep it up. Then Allah says, Allah knows that you are unable to do it. Okay? So now he made that permissible too. So you see how the fast was a lot harder than what it actually is. And this is the wisdom of Allah, that he makes a matter very difficult. Then he, you make, he makes, makes it easier for you, makes you feel the blessing that the matter has become easy for us now. So, what about tarawih? Tarawih. Many people don't understand the nature of things. Okay, the Prophet peace be upon him did not pray tarawih with a group. The Prophet peace be upon him prayed tarawih, okay, 
by himself. There was no tarawih in the mosque in the time of the Prophet, like we have tarawih. Okay? Tarawih started, you have some? Tarawih started in the time of Umar bin Khattab. After the death of the Prophet, after the death of Abu Bakr, there were so many Muslims praying out loud in the mosque that they couldn't focus anymore, couldn't concentrate. Until one of the Sahaba, he said, let us all, just get it all in one row, and we'll pray behind one person. And they did that. Then Omar came, and he said, this is excellent. This is much better, more organized. So from then on, we began to pray Tarawih. Okay? So this is that. Now we go now to the next pillar, Zakah. Take a little bit about Zakah, and a little bit about Hajj, and then we're done. Zakah is not on income. Zakah is on savings. What is the definition of savings in Sharia? It is that which you have had sitting, doing nothing for one lunar year or more. That's what we call savings. Okay. And you owe upon it one fortieth of it, which equivalent to 2.5%. And this 2.5% is only... So what if I have... If I have $100 in a bank sitting there for a year, do I have to give 2.5% on it? If I have two $20 bills sitting there, do I have to give, give away $1? No. There's a nisab. There is a bare minimum. All right? Which is uh, always fluctuating because it's setting gold, so it's always fluctuating, and therefore it's basically uh, hovering around, what, $2,000 these days? It's always fluctuating. You got to check it every year. But it's around $2,000 or so. Okay? So this is called the nisab, the bare minimum. So someone has got it like $700. Is he going to pay zakat on that? No. But you have two, $3,000 sitting there in the bank for one year, you pay zakat on that. Why? Because Allah would want you to invest it. Because if you had a million dollars there, let's say you had, forget a million, let's say you had $10,000 and you're just sitting there. Every day you take off 2.5%. Every year. After two years, another 2.5%. Another 2.5%. Another 2.5%. Right? And percentage-wise, the 2.5% is growing. Because the first year, it's 2.5 out of 10. The second year, it's not 2.5 out of 10. It's 2.5 out of the remaining. So percentage-wise, it's increasing. Right? Right? The percentage is increasing. Eventually, you're going to say, I'm going to run out of money. So what am I going to do? Invest it. Once you put it in an investment, you don't pay zakat on it. Right? You don't pay zakat on it. No. Let's say I take the money, I buy a house. I rent out the house. I don't pay zakat on that. You don't pay zakat on that. Right? You only pay zakat on that once the day you sell your investment. Right? And you cash out, then you pay zakat once on that amount. So why does Allah want us to do that? So that instead of sitting there watching my money shrink, Allah will say, okay, you're going to sit there and watch your money, it's going to shrink a little bit every year. So you say, okay, let me buy a house and rent it out. Now someone's benefiting. Now you're taking a risk. You're sharing in the society and improving the society. Right? So this is Allah's way of motivating you to move your money and let people benefit. So the person you bought the house benefited from it. The person who was renting the house is benefiting. Okay? All that stuff is happening. Okay? So that's why, uh, uh, that's the motive behind the zakah. Zakah also exists for, all of, for other things like animals. Zakah exists for... Uh, natural resources you find that you own like if you find a uh, uh, thing of whatever resource you have a question? yep zakah has eight quarter categories that you give it to eight categories of people that you give zakah to 
ultimately number one the poorest of the Muslims and if you don't know them you can give it to your local centers and they distribute it then the Muslims who are, he's poor but he has needs he has needs so there are some hand-to-mouth they call it hand-to-mouth poor like literally if I give him $50 he's going to spend it buying food today because he doesn't have food there are other people who they have food they have shoes they have cars but they're always in need. They can't afford to live, right? They're always in debt. You can give them zakat too, right? You can give them zakat too. Zakat can also be given, is also given for the people who collect zakat. Zakat is given for wars, if there's a war. Zakat is given for uh, other purposes, but these are the main purposes. The zakat collectors as well take their, their checks from the zakat itself. Yeah, so like the, the uh, it's like we would say the IRS getting its salaries from the taxes, basically. So the zakat collectors themselves, the institution, gets funded from the zakat itself. All right? There are there's zakat on other things like uh, shops. If you have a little shop, if you got a store that you sell anything, one day a year you pay inventory, you get your inventory, and you pay zakat on the value of your stuff okay, that you have. So that's zakat. Last pillar is Hajj. It was made obligatory with two years left in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. He did not lead the first Hajj showing that, right, if you cannot afford it, then you don't do it. And he at the time didn't afford it to show us that yes, even the Prophet, peace be upon him, didn't do Hajj. So if you, don't, if you can't afford Hajj, you shouldn't feel bad. Secondly, the Prophet did Hajj the last year, in the second year, and that was the last year of his life, showing us that Hajj once in a lifetime is enough. Because if the Prophet had made Hajj three times, people would think, I gotta make Hajj three times. Right? It's not the case. Right? Once is enough. Abu Bakr led the first Hajj. Um, hajj begins on the eighth of Dhul Hijjah, and it is six days. Right? Six days. What do we do on the first day? On the first day, we, of course, we put on our ihram. On the first day, we get to Mecca. You make tawaf and sa'i. Then you go to Mina and you spend the night. That's the, that's the first day of Hajj. On the second day, you go from Mina, okay, to Arafah, and you spend the whole day making dua at Arafah. Then you go down to Muzdalifah and spend the night. That's day two. So it's, if you look at it, it's from Mecca all the way to Arafah and back is like a loop. Right? So you go to Mecca, then to Mina. Next morning, Mina to Arafah to Muzdarifah. Day three is Eid, Salat al-Eid. You wake, you wake up, you go to Mina. Then you go to Mecca, make Tawaf again, and then go back to Mina and spend three days. That's it. So the first two days, really three days, have some travel. And the whole thing, is not even like from MBIC to ISCJ, it's not even that. Right? It's less than that. It's a lap. You're taking a lap. From Mecca to Mina. Mina, you spend the night. You go to Mina, okay, to Arafah, to Muzdalifah. You go from Muzdalifah to Mina, to Mecca, back to Mina, and you spend three days. The third day is optional. You can go home after that. And when you, after Eid, after you go to Mecca, Okay, the second time, on the third day, that's when you shave your head and, and women could just cut their, clip their hair 
and take off their ihram, put on your street clothes, your normal clothes, and go rest and make dhikr of Allah and eat and replenish yourself for three days in Mina. The third day is optional. All right? So that's basically the basic structure of Hajj. Right? So that you can have a, con- a concept of when Hajj. Now, the Arabs did not have a calendar. The Arabs had 12 months. Okay, they had their 12 months. They didn't have a year or the beginning of the calendar. Right? The, the Arabs used to define their year. How did they define their year? They would just mark the year by any incident that took place. So if there was a flood, they would mark it the year of the flood. So they would mark all events from the year of the flood. So they would mark your birth by two years after the flood, three years after the flood. And they would just mark the number of years between incidents. Right? So what do we, most people, right? Most people mark, in your life you mark stuff from college graduation, right? I graduated college. Or I got married. I got married. Then everything from like then on becomes a year after I got married, two years after I got married, three years after I got married. Then it let, let's say, God forbid, something happens like uh, uh, the house burns down. Then like everything is judged a year after the house burned down, two years after the house burned down. Then you know between marriage and the house burning down, right? Hopefully there's no link, okay, of causation, right? Between that was 15 years, right? So that's how they kept track. So they know how old people were, but they didn't have years. They had mark milestones, and they knew the difference between the two milestones. Well, in the time of Omar, Omar ibn Khattab decided, we need to know when, we need to have a marker, permanent marker. So people said, it should be the birth of the Prophet. They said, no, it should be the revelation. It should be the Isra and the Mi'raj. It should be the conquest of Mecca. Finally, Sahaba decided on the Hijrah of the Prophet. So when Islam actually became a political entity, the Muslims became a politically viable entity and city. So that was the Hijrah. Now they needed to decide, okay, well, what's the first year of the calendar? Right? What is the first, year, what, uh, sorry, what is the first month of the calendar? And Sahaba said Ramadan it should be, right? Some people said other things. Well, Uthman ibn Affan, he's the one who said, every time we make hajj, we begin our deeds brand new, right? We begin our deeds anew. So therefore, we should begin the year anew as well. And let's make Dhul Hijjah the last month of the calendar and make Muharram the first month of the calendar. So that's how Muharram became the first month of the calendar, right? And that's the logic behind it. So it's connected to hajj in a sense. All right, so that's your five pillars, some fundamentals about the five pillars. Any questions? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. With the intention of zakah? Yeah. You mean what you get back? When you have zakah, right? Let's say you have your daily, your monthly spending... And then you have your savings, right? That's how people divide up their money. If Allah tells, if, he, if the rule, if, if the Sharia tells us, I, I owe a thousand dollars of zakah, it doesn't matter where you pay it from. Whether you pay it from your income or your savings, it doesn't matter. So you could pay your, your zakah from anything. Oh, I see what you're saying. What they withhold from you, zakah is upon the money that you've had. You, 
in your possession for a year. So you would not count at that money. Even if, let's say I have money, right? Let's say the government says, look, you're under some whatever. We're freezing your assets. I don't have control over it. I don't pay zakat on it. You only pay zakat on money that's in your possession, right? Let's say I gave $10,000 to a guy, go invest my money and make, uh, make me some money, right? It's not in my possession anymore. Khalas. I don't pay zakat on it. Yeah. Behavior, the, the acts of worship that make someone a Muslim, that's Islam. The beliefs that make you a Muslim is Iman. The correct attitude to have towards Allah Azza wa Jal is Ihsan. Ihsan. The correct attitude and approach with which to worship Allah. Okay? And then the signs of the end of time. That's the fourth pillar. The knowledge of Islam is four pillars. And the scholars call these subjects fiqh, aqidah, tasawwuf, and amarat, or alamat as uh, Law, doctrine, spirituality, and uh, signs of the end of time. That's what the scholars call that. So why did the scholars not use the terms that the Prophet used? Because if those terms, if you apply it to yourself, it's as if you're praising yourself. Right? So if I say, like what would, if I say, I'm a, uh, uh, let's say, Iman, or Ihsan. If I say I'm an expert of Ihsan, I'm a, I'm a specialist in Ihsan. So what would I be called? A Muhsin. That's a praise to myself. Right? So they didn't want to do that, so they gave it a different name. So this is why if you ask, why if the Prophet used these four terms, why do we end up using the word fiqh? So fiqh is understanding. Now it's up to you to practice it. Because understanding is objective. But to say someone is a, uh, he's perfected his Islam, that's a judgment, that's a value statement. So they don't want to make a value statement. So they just called it fiqh, aqidah, tasawuf, and tasqiyah, alamat sa. Alright, do we have everyone's email here? Alright, so that we'll plug you into the canvas. So where's that paper that was going around? Anyone who doesn't have their email? From last week, you have it? Okay, good. Alright, good. So we'll wrap it up with that, inshallah. Help yourself take some chips on the way out. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr inna al-insana la fi khusr. Illa alladhina amanu wa aminu al-salihat. وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر السلام عليكم ورحمة That book, 40 Hadith. Did you get it? You didn't get it. Raise your hand how many you need it. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Alright, so we'll get 12, 13 copies. Who's got a Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay.